Did you shoot anybody today? As a cop, if you've heard that question once, you've heard it a thousand times. I wish I could say it was a tongue-in-cheek, self-aware joke referencing common media tropes on law enforcement, but it's not. Unfortunately, most of the people you hear it from are serious. They think that you shot somebody today, and the worst part about it is they think you liked it. Our responses vary depending on the situation. We might ignore them and pretend we didn't hear it. We might respond seriously by saying, we don't find that comment funny. Or we might play along. Not yet, but you could be first. It gets old. But you know, this isn't the worst one we get. It's not the most common, and it's not the most annoying. That award belongs to this statement. If you don't be good, the police officer is going to take you to jail. We hear this from mothers and fathers, from grandparents and even family members. We hear this at restaurants and gas stations. We even hear it in the lobby of the police department where parents have brought their children when they're acting up to threaten them with the boogeyman called the police officer. And we hate it. The world we find ourselves in today is a direct result of the war on cops. Or should I say the Cold War on cops? Decades ago, the vilification of the police started. It started subtly in the television shows and the movies. Newspapers weren't far behind. Politicians and community activists, educators and researchers, all with an agenda, an ideology, that the police were evil. They pushed these concepts on the classrooms, and eventually, through social media, they reached the world. The world we live in today has turned good into bad, right into wrong, and screams into the face of anyone who dares to question the narrative. Today, violent criminals are routinely released from jail with no bail. Charges quickly dropped in a misguided move towards decarceration. Defense attorneys are almost unnecessary since activist judges and prosecutors dismiss charges at an unheard of rate. This sends a message. Crime is no longer illegal. Crime is now a social norm. Violence is at an all-time high, and those who attempt to defend themselves or others are quickly charged and jailed, forced to serve prison time, while the violent criminal walks free. To curb the violence, politicians cry for more gun laws while refusing to enforce the gun laws on the books. Shoplifting has become an epidemic, yet states have continued to raise the requirement to arrest for felony theft to a staggering level. Stores in some states are simply a display of advertisements with all the merchandise locked up to avoid the blitz-style thefts. Looking around, most people find themselves saying it must get better soon. I mean, it can't get worse. It has to get better. Can it get worse before it gets better? And what do we need to do to make it better? It's time to start telling our own stories. I'm Steve Kellums, and welcome to Blue Canary. My introduction likely elicited a variety of responses, depending on who is listening. Remember, this is a podcast by a cop for cops, which means my intended audience just nodded their head along with me as I talked about the sad state of criminal justice in America. However, not all of my listeners are cops, and some of you might be thinking I'm over-exaggerating a bit. I wish I were. I wish I could chalk it all up to being old and grumpy. You kids better stay off my lawn, shit. All you have to do is look out the window to see what is going on. Look out the window, a euphemism for seeing it for yourself. Too many people rely on the media to tell them what to think. They tune into Facebook to get today's talking points. They first want to know what Leonardo DiCaprio thinks about the topic before they can have an opinion. Look out the window. 
In 2022, Rafael Manguel, a senior fellow and head of research for policing and public safety at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research, published his book, Criminal Injustice. If your profession revolves around the criminal justice system, then this is a must-read book. Using extensive studies and documentation, Manguel takes the fight to the decarceration and depolicing narrative. He quickly and succinctly destroys the concept of defunding the police. Criminal Injustice points out that the defund police movement fundamentally does not understand the causes of crime. They believe that by transferring funds away from the police and putting those funds into non-law enforcement services such as social work, the cycle of crime will be broken and crime will decline. However, the facts and studies prove the opposite. In 2020, the United States saw more than 21,000 murders, which accounted for a 30% increase over 2019 and the biggest year-over-year increase on record. His book goes on to state, The year 2020 was preceded by a decade-long trend of increasingly vitriolic expressions of anti-police rhetoric in the media and academia, Decarceration. Between 2009 and 2019, the country's imprisonment rate declined 17%. Depolicing. During the same period, arrests declined by more than 25%, going from more than 13.6 million to just over 10 million, while the number of full-time police officers working in American cities went from about 452,000 in 2009 down to 443,000 in 2019. He hits you with these numbers in the first 22 pages of the book. It only gets better from there. He points out that in 2019, Chicago, which is anecdotally known as a violent and dangerous city, had a murder rate of 18.2 per 1,000 residents. That number made Chicago 28th for the most homicides in a city in 2019. St. Louis, Missouri was number one in 2019, with a rate of 64.54 murders in 2019. And here's where the statistics get fun. Chicago advocates are going to declare that their city is safe. It's safer than St. Louis. Just look at these numbers. Except Chicago is 350% larger than St. Louis in land area and has a greater population of 919%. By taking in large swaths of populations in land area that don't experience crime and lumping them into the areas that do have a crime problem dilutes the statistics. The point he is trying to make is that while comparing crime based on per capita population might look like you're comparing apples to apples, that's not what's going on. Crime is hyper-concentrated across the United States into small geographical areas and neighborhoods. For example, West Garfield Park is a neighborhood in Chicago. It has an estimated population of 17,433 people, and in 2019, it had a murder rate of 131.9. That's a big difference from the number of 18.2 you get when you spread that crime over the entire city. I could sing the praises of this book for hours, but do yourself a favor and get a copy now. You can thank me later. The Legal Liability Risk Management Institute is the nation's largest provider of liability and risk management services in the United States. Our goal is to help reduce liability, reduce lawsuits, and enhance officer performance. Regardless of the size of your agency, we have a risk management solution. You may contact us at www.llrmi.com or call 317-386-8325. On November 2, 2023, Rafael Manguel published another article with the Manhattan Institute, Hardening the System, Three Common Sense Measures to Help Keep Crime at Bay. 
This article builds on what he started with criminal injustice by not only updating some of the data, but giving solid advice about what must happen next to stem the tide of lawlessness. His article states, Although several contributing factors are likely, this general deterioration in public safety and order was unquestionably preceded and accompanied by a virtually unidirectional shift toward leniency and away from accountability in the policing, prosecutorial, and criminal justice policy spaces. That shift is evidenced by, among other things, three major trends in enforcement. A 25% decline in the number of those imprisoned during 2011 to 2022, a 15% decline in the number of those held in jail during 2010 to 2021, and a 26% decline in the number of arrests affected by law enforcement officers during 2009 to 2019. He goes on to say, notable contributing factors to the decline in enforcement include a sharp uptick in public scrutiny and interventions in the form of investigations and legal action taken by state attorneys generals and the Federal Department of Justice against local law enforcement agencies, the worsening of an ongoing police recruitment and retention crisis, particularly in large urban departments, the electoral success of the so-called progressive prosecutor movement, which by 2022 had won seats in 75 jurisdictions representing more than 72 million U.S. residents, Perhaps the most important, the adoption of a slew of criminal justice and policing reform measures at all levels of government. These data sets preface his call for police reform. As I've said many times on this program, I am a believer in police reform. We must be reforming our profession. Reform helps the profession grow and adapt to changing data, crimes, norms, and requirements of those people we serve. If you're not adapting and innovating, you're dying. The issue at hand is that we are letting those who have created the crisis solve the crisis. If your neighbor intentionally cuts the power from your house and then says he has a solution, just run an extension cord from his place to yours and you can pay him for the cost of the electric instead of the power company. You'd likely be suspicious, wouldn't you? I would hope you would be suspicious. That's what's been happening with police reform over the last decade. Politicians and advocates who have been causing the problems with their failed programs now want to fix the problem by reforming the very institution they have been intentionally destroying. As Rick Snyder said, if you break it, you can remake it. Manguel's article gives three specific things that need to be done to fix the problems. Let's break down each topic and take a look at his proposal. Modified three strikes creating a point system for various offenses as well as a points threshold that will trigger a mandatory minimum sentence enhancement in order to improve deterrence for those beneath the threshold and maximize incapacitation for those who step over it. The concept of three-strike laws has been around since the 1950s. The idea is that offenders who keep offending begin getting higher mandatory sentences for newer crimes. The concept behind the laws is to create an untenable situation for the criminal. If you continue to commit crimes, you will be forced to spend more and more time in prison. Criminal justice studies over the decades have been very clear. A very small amount of the population commits a very large amount of crime. The working police officer doesn't need a criminal justice study to tell him that. No matter how big the city, we know the criminals. We've arrested them time and time again, and the running joke is that they'll be back on the streets before our paperwork is done. Manguel cites the results of some specific studies that really bring this point home. A more recent problem analysis of gun violence in Oakland, California, found that just 0.1% of the city's population was responsible for the majority of its homicides. 
On average, homicide suspects in that city had 10 prior arrests, with 84% of them having been incarcerated in the past. And in Chicago, an analysis of gun violence in 2015 and 2016 found that shooting and murder suspects had nearly 12 prior arrests on average. These statistics show that the most urgent of America's crime problems is driven by a small group of prolific offenders, many of whom had active criminal justice statuses, an open case, probation, or parole at the time they took a life. If we incapacitate our career criminals, we can dramatically affect crime. In essence, the ideas that led to the decarceration movement are incredibly flawed. By emptying the jails and prisons and allowing repeat offenders to continue their crime sprees, you increase crime. If they're locked up, they can't commit crimes. Crime rates, especially murder rates, decrease. The first true three-strikes law was passed in Washington State in 1993, and quickly other states followed the trend. By the end of the 1990s, a version of the Three Strikes Law was the norm across the United States. But the laws fell out of favor with the strong push from the decarceration movement. Their concerns were that with more cases being prosecuted and with mandatory sentencing, there were fewer plea bargains. This caused a backlog in the courts that cost taxpayers money. While this was true, the results of those costs were safer streets and a decline in crime, specifically violent crime. A common argument against these three-strike laws is that the mandatory sentencing caused more violence because there was no reason for the criminal not to be violent. Those arguments hold no basis in fact, and no studies have substantiated that claim. Facts matter, and the facts are that incapacitating criminals by putting them in prison for their crimes has a significant impact on public safety. Rafael Manguel's modified version of the three-strike law includes sentencing points for minor and non-violent crimes, giving them less bearing on long-term mandatory sentencing without disregarding them altogether. He also takes into account other lessons learned from the prior implementation of the three-strike concept. His next proposed measure? Truth in sentencing. Setting a floor for how much of a given sentence must be served before a convicted felon becomes eligible for initial release into community supervision in order to maximize incapacitation for those who have been convicted of a serious offense and sentenced to a term of imprisonment. This one is really important because it's a bait-and-switch game that's been played on the general population for years. For example, in the state of Indiana, criminals convicted of major felonies, including murder, can earn one day off for every three days spent serving their sentence for good time credit. What counts as good time credit? No disciplinary actions, taking certain classes, getting your GED. In other words, if you don't cause any trouble, that's good time. So that 20-year prison sentence for murder just turned into 15-year sentence. Prisoners that complete residential drug programs can get an additional year taken off of their sentence. That makes 14 years for those of you counting at home. There are other programs, such as compassionate release programs, that can get you an early release for specific problems and issues at home, such as taking care of a child or dependent or medical issues. Then there's post-conviction relief. This is a process not unlike an appeal that a defendant can plead to the trial court and present information, evidence, or other issues hoping for a new trial or sentence reduction. Many of these programs are specifically designed to alleviate prison populations. In other words, they want them to succeed. They're very lenient with the application, and almost everyone is eligible. They are also typically adjudicated by special groups or advocates that support decarceration, so they push for greater and greater sentence reduction over time. Finally, the post-conviction relief process 
That allows a judge to be hard on crime at the trial, but come back later and significantly drop the sentence when no one is looking. Manguel points out, on average, state prisoners served less than half, 44% of their maximum sentence prior to being released on parole. The 2008 figures are not, unfortunately, anomalous. BJS report on recidivism for 2016 produced nearly identical findings across these measures. You heard that correctly. On average, state prisoners served 44% of their maximum sentence prior to being released. That guy who just murdered your family member and got 20 years in prison only served 8.8 years before he got out. Why is this bad? Because criminals commit crimes. That's it. Bad guys do bad things. I'm not talking about people who make mistakes or act under duress or intense stress or passion. I'm talking about career criminals who account for the vast majority of crime in the U.S. Career criminals are by definition those who have made crime their job. It's what they do. And when they get out of prison, they go right back to work. Manguel's research points directly to that issue. Moreover, a Manhattan Institute report on New York State's recent parole reform found that those with an active supervision status, probation or parole, were significantly more likely to be rearrested after post-arraignment release than their counterparts who were not under state supervision for a previous offense. The concept of truth in sentencing is that we're setting minimum guidelines. The criminal must stay incarcerated a minimum amount of time before they're eligible for release. When I investigated drug offenses, we always pushed for a federal charge against our target because we knew if they got state charges, they would be out of jail and back on the streets within months or at best a couple of years. Most federal drug charges required the offender to serve 80% of their time before being eligible for release, and the bad guys knew that. They hated it when we charged them federally. His final measure is data transparency. Data transparency identifies several types of criminal-related data that jurisdictions will be encouraged to collect and report in a standardized manner to address the problem of making and evaluating policing and criminal justice policies without the benefit of reliable, relevant data. Mark Twain said there were lies, damn lies, and statistics, and he wasn't wrong. The problem with statistics is that people can use the data present it in a certain way, and then ignore other data to make their point with proof. Now, if the data is good, solid information, the truth will come out. But unfortunately, today, that isn't the case. Studies ignore certain data sets and then do not share that in their final report. Researchers will go in with an expected outcome and manipulate the data to show that outcome. Or, in many cases, it's garbage data and doesn't actually mean anything, but it's presented as important. Law enforcement is not immune to these issues. As a matter of fact, it's highly susceptible to the problems. Police collect an incredible amount of data every day. Or should I say, could collect an incredible amount of data. But first, you have to properly collect it and store it. Remember that policing and their support fields are not the best paid out there. So when I expect an 18-year-old kid making $13.50 an hour who's received a total of six hours training to book someone into jail to not make any data errors... I may be expecting a little too much. On top of that, every single agency has a different CAD RMS system, a different way of gathering and storing information, and none of those systems talk to each other. We have a hard time determining how many pieces of evidence we collected at our own agency last month. Imagine trying to figure out what percentage of your inmate population is incarcerated for arson as well as narcotics trafficking in a HIDA zone. Now, expand that to a national level. 
We all must get on the same page. We need to set standards for data collection and data sharing. Many of you are going to say we do have standards. We have UCR, the Uniform Crime Report, through the FBI. Well, that was a pretty basic level of data collection that left a lot of holes in the data. We replaced UCR because it sucked. We replaced it with NIBRS, or the National Incident-Based Reporting System, which turned out to suck worse. NIBRS is so confusing, the FBI will give you different answers if you ask them directly about data entry. No, we need a national standard, and then we must force agencies to comply with the standard, because the other issue with crime statistics is what happens when they just don't report them. One year at a chief of police meeting, my chief was joking with another police chief. It seems that the agency in question had reported zero burglaries in their city for the previous year. Zero burglaries. It's easy to be the safest city in the state when you refuse to report crimes. I also remember a very serious incident that occurred in the late 80s at a local university. An angry party-goer had been ejected from a fraternity party, and he returned with a shotgun and blasted out the front windows of the fraternity house while a dance was going on inside. Thankfully, no one was hurt, but the next day, the university police agency reported the incident as a vandalism. They didn't want to scare away any prospective students. If you think agencies are not flat-out lying about their crime stats to the public, you are sadly mistaken. Politicians and administrators have a vested interest in the statistics and the outcomes. Since there's very little penalties for making a mistake with your stats, there's no reason for them to stop. So we need a standard for data collection as well as a method to force agencies to participate with the collection process. These three ideas would go a long way to creating a safer society. Please go read Criminal Injustice and then follow that up with this article. It will help give you the vocabulary necessary to respond to the other side's arguments. While these are great ideas and I fully support them, they're going to be very hard to implement. You see, change is hard. These are ugly issues and will require us to face those ugly issues head on. I'm not sure that we're ready for that yet. In 2020, the defund police movement went into overdrive. Hundreds of cities, counties, and states instituted what they believed was criminal justice reform. What they were really doing was decriminalizing the criminals and handcuffing the police. Crime responded. Today, we are facing levels of crime and violent behavior that we have not seen in decades, all a result of these actions. People are getting tired of it. Citizens are starting to push back. Politicians are noticing. And as we near the end of 2023, we see those same cities, counties, and states that took actions to handcuff the police, to defund them, to demoralize them, and to create laws that made it harder to keep citizens safe are taking a step back. On October 23, 2023, the mayor of Washington, D.C., Muriel Bowser, announced a plan to roll back some of the progressive police reforms passed in 2020. D.C.'s crime is out of control, and there is heavy pressure on the mayor to do something. Is this the tipping point? Are we finally starting to see public pressure forcing the anti-police movement back into the shadows? I don't think so. On November 3rd, 2023, a 43-year-old suspect in a stolen vehicle refused to stop for police. He used the stolen truck to ram the police car several times before he was finally apprehended. The same man had been involved in another incident in February of 2023 where he had led police on a pursuit and had rammed three police cars before finally being shot by officers. In 2018, the same man had driven over a police car occupied by an officer and was arrested for the offense. In 2017, he had led police on a pursuit in which he also rammed three police cars. In a matter of six years, 
the same career criminal had four altercations with the police in which he tried to injure and kill officers by ramming police vehicles. In six years, the same career criminal had destroyed eight police cars. In six years, the same career criminal had been arrested for numerous violent felony charges. The police didn't fail here. The prosecutors failed. The judges failed. The system failed. Unfortunately, the war on cops is going to get worse before it gets better. And yes, it can get worse. And that's the story we have to tell. Thank you for joining. As always, I'm curious what questions you're getting asked. What isn't the news covering? What story needs to be told? Connect with me at bluecanarypodcast at gmail.com. 